0: Um, I remember specifically this one time, nine years old, couldn't sleep. It was already dark. It was probably about 11 at night. But I couldn't sleep because I was deathly scared. And all I could think about was heaven. I was so scared that I left my bed and went upstairs to find my mom. And even this was a risk because she'd given me strict orders to go to sleep because they had company over And so I didn't go all the way upstairs. I just sat at the top of the stairs. And my mom found me and consoled me and I explained to her my problem. That I was afraid of heaven. Why was I afraid of heaven? Because when I was nine years old, heaven was something that didn't make sense to me. Something I didn't understand. I'd already understood the gospel. I repented of my sin, and with the mind of a nine-year-old, I was following Christ as best as I could. But what I didn't know about the eternal nature of the new heaven and the new earth, that shook me. What was I to do, and what, what could my mom say to help me? Well, she couldn't help me, and I lived with that fear for many, many years, And whenever I would start to think about heaven, I'd get a knot in my stomach, and I would literally choke on the thought that after I die, I would go to a place forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and you get the picture. It was something I didn't understand. And so I would try to distract myself and think of something else, and this would work for a little while, and maybe a few weeks or perhaps some months, and then one night it would just come back to me, and I would get hung up on that again. It's interesting, just this past weekend we were with family and we had the same conversation and two or three of my siblings said, I had the same thing. And some these are some of the things that were said. Like, shouldn't there be an end to heaven, like just like there is on earth? Or I would get anxiety attacks over this. This would freak me out. It was because of our lack of understanding. And, and don't get me wrong, I had trusted in God for his righteousness, and I knew that I didn't want to go to hell. I knew that for certain. But heaven also scared me. And the way that I was able to, shall we say, heal or grow from that is what today's passage is about. So we're going to get to that at the end of our message. Our passage this morning is at the end of Philippians, so it's been a few weeks. We have had Good Friday and Easter in the middle, so let's review what we've touched base with so far. So Paul, in his letter, begins by telling the Philippians about his imprisonment and his desire to be with them, and yet he sees that whatever comes, whether life or death, all is gain because of Christ. That was in Philippians 1. Uh, In Philippians 3, he talks about two individuals living out their examples of followers of Jesus. Uh, He mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, Later on, he talks about his own life, testifying to his own example as an outstanding Jew. And yet his life, as exemplary as it is, gains him nothing. It's worth nothing towards his status. Yet, Knowing Christ and being known by Christ is worth everything. And then in our last message before Easter, uh, Robert gave us this picture of the athlete who strains forward, not looking behind, but looking ahead to the prize. And he challenged us to not let the past hold us and each other back, but the promise of the future propels us forward. So up to this point, we've looked at Paul's trials Paul's friends, Paul's testimony, and Paul's example. All of this speaks to the heart of the letter, captured in the center of this book. It's often known as a song, and and the summary of that is, Have the mind of Christ, shown in the example of Christ for the glory of God. So we're going to read today verses 17 to 21. Brothers, Brothers and sisters, join in following my example, and note those who walk, as you have been, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even with weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, They have set their mind on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from whom we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And we value it, Uh, we want to understand it, and we also want to uh, follow and obey what it says. Help us to understand it, Uh, Lord guide my mind and my words, just take anything away that shouldn't be there. Uh, We want to do and know what is right from you, in Jesus' name, amen. So he's just encouraged them to strain forward, and then he calls them to imitate him, to follow his example in verse 17. So why does Paul call others to imitate him? Shouldn't we all imitate Christ? Paul himself wasn't perfect. We know this. He, even after he repented, he made many mistakes. Think of the disagreement between him and Barnabas. It was so strong that it broke up their working relationship. And Paul was the one who ended up coming around. He was the one that said that John Mark was a help to me and fruitful for my ministry. He also publicly condemned the high priest while on trial, and then he admitted that he was wrong for doing that. We can understand this language of imitation or this example following when we understand the rabbi-disciple relationship. In Jewish times, when you were called to be a disciple... You did everything that your rabbi did so that you could be just like him. Uh, when the disciples awoke, they would do it when he awoke. They would eat exactly what he, eat, uh, what he ate in the way that he was doing it. If he was using a spoon, you used a spoon. Uh, they would dress how he dressed. They would pray how he prayed. Uh, one source I found, literally, they would go to the bathroom the same way that the rabbi did. That's how important it was to follow your rabbi. You did exactly what they did. They were 1,000% devoted to imitating this person that they respected, this person whose life was worth following. And a wise and a humble rabbi would take the time to teach his students even through his failures. There was no such thing as perfection, but to imitate someone who was farther along than you meant that you could learn. So already we come to our first application. We can do this today in a very practical sense. What do you want to be good at? Building houses, fixing cars, creating beautiful art, cooking beautiful meals, learn how to do your own taxes. You don't they don't teach you that in school. Go find someone who's good at doing that well and learn from them. And that's even more so when it comes to character. God is the one who changes our hearts and and is the one who grows and changes our character, but we can learn that by the example of others. Do you want to be more patient, more respectful, more generous, more kind, more joyful, more loving? We need to be trained in that. We need to practice that. You can read all the literature in the world, including the Bible, about why and how to be generous But that doesn't make you good at it. Learning insight and gaining knowledge is helpful. But reading about how to hit a nail with a hammer does not make you good at it. You need to actually do it. You need to practice it. And I guarantee you, I have been a carpenter for the last 12 years of my life. I can teach you how to hit a nail with a hammer better than if I give you a book about it. And that's what we're talking about here. Paul says, I'm already doing this. I'm already following Christ. Do what I am doing. If you want to know how to follow Christ, observe and follow others who are following Christ. Imitate me does not ignore the fact that we have limitations, that we have weaknesses, and that we are not perfect. And Paul's very clear about that in verse 12, where he says, I haven't already attained this. I'm not already perfected, but I press on. So he knows he's not perfect, but this growth, this imitation is recognizing that it comes with doing, not just mental assent. It recognizes the the importance of growth within the community. Paul says this somewhere else, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I love that thought. Because he's not setting himself ahead of others, he describes himself as an example and recognizing that he too is imitating. I said that verse slightly wrong. It's imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul is saying this, you are called to imitate Christ just like I am called to do that. I want to help you do that. So follow my lead and we'll do this together. So That's verse 17. We're going to come back to verse 18 and 19 because they are properly understood in comparison to verse 20. So Paul has given this command to imitate them and he, then he tells them why and what will happen. First, the why. Paul tells his listeners in 18 and 19 not to set their mind on heavenly thing, on earthly things. And why is that? Because our citizenship is not on earth But in heaven. So when I was younger, I flew a lot with my parents. My grandparents lived in Europe, and I loved to fly. But that was, I learned to love to fly after the first time I flew. I was actually really scared, but that's because I thought we were going to be in an airplane crash. And I learned that the statistical uh, risk of me dying in a car accident is far higher than that of an airplane. So then after that, oh, no big deal, I'll fly. I love flying. First time I flew by myself was when I was 16. I flew out west to help at a summer camp. Loved the camp so much that I kept on going back to that. And it was out in Saskatchewan, so the fastest way to go there is to fly. And so airports became this fascinating thing for me. It could bring me to great places. And the more I flew, the more confident I grew. I grew. And I started traveling to other provinces, and visiting friends, and making friends, and soon was traveling to other countries. And every time I flew, I carried with me a special piece of paper. You guys all know what this is. This is a passport. You don't need it within Canada. Outside of that, I needed one. So what is a passport? A passport is a document that identifies me as a Canadian citizen and requests that I, the bearer, be able to travel freely and safely. It requests such privilege based on the fact that I'm a Canadian citizen. So I've traveled to many countries around the world, but I remember the first time I was landing in a foreign country in another airport, it wasn't a Western nation, and I realized suddenly, I had this realization, I'm not in my home country. In Canada, I can travel from place to place with all the rights and privileges of a citizen. If I was in trouble, I could theoretically ask any officer or government official to help me out and and they would do that. But now I was abroad. My passport requests free and safe travel, but it doesn't guarantee it. I was an alien in a foreign land. I no longer had the rights and privileges of a Canadian citizen. I also didn't owe this government taxes. What does it mean to be a citizen? The word citizen means a person native to or naturalized in a country. It refers to someone who owes allegiance to its government and is entitled to its protection. As a Canadian citizen, I'm expected, among other things to follow the laws of the land, and to pay taxes. I'm entitled to specific rights and privileges and responsibilities. And simultaneously, the Canadian government has promised my protection and my freedom. The Philippians would have understood this concept of citizenship well. Robert brought this up a few weeks ago in chapter 1, uh, as we looked in Philippians in the beginning. The city of Philippi had been conquered by the Roman Empire. The citizens were not Romans, they were Macedonians, part of the former Greek Empire. But in 42 BC, the Romans granted Philippi the highest status possible for a conquered city, the status of a Roman colony. So this would be like if Canada decided to invade and take over Florida, so instead of crossing the border, you just go into your own place. But instead of forcing them to pay tribute and remain in their state, we said that all citizens of Florida now get Canadian status. Yep, still got to pay taxes, but they also get the rights and privileges of Canadians, such as owning and selling property and possessions. Uh, they can travel freely. They have freedom of conscience and assembly. Uh, we'll minimize their right to bear arms, of course, but they can still have them. Uh, They get to use our court systems and be protected by our army. They would get our charter rights. For the city of Philippi, having Roman citizenship was immensely valuable. If you were a Roman citizen, you were exempt from land and poll taxes. If you were born within the colony of Philippi, you automatically received Roman citizenship. And this is how Paul received his citizenship. He was a Jew by ethnicity. He was born to Jewish parents. But he was a Roman citizen because he had been born within Rome or within a colony of Rome, even though he was not ethnically Roman. That's how he said it. Because remember, he's about to get whipped. And he says, hey, I'm a Roman. You can't do that. And the, 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 whoever was going to do it, he says, well, you know, I'm a Roman too. And, by, and I paid for that. And Paul's like, I was born a Roman. But he's very clear, his mother and father were Jewish. So when I say I'm a Canadian citizen, am I describing where I'm from? Not really. I am from Canada is a statement declaring where I live, the geographical location where I eat, where I work, where I sleep. But de- declaring Canadian citizenship doesn't declare where my life is lived. I could have a full time job in Timbuktu. And still be Canadian. I am from Canada is a statement about where you are from. I am Canadian is a statement about whose you are. And so when we say we're a Christian, we are saying whose we are. I can be anywhere on this earth, up on the moon, in fact. But no location changes the fact that I am a Christian As a Christian, I've declared allegiance to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm given certain freedoms as I submit to him. And simultaneously, Christ has declared protection and freedom for us as his subjects. And so a little side note, when I declare allegiance to Christ, why am I surprised that there are those against me? Christ had said, he who is not for me is against me. So where is my citizenship held? As a Canadian, it's held in Canada in some database in some government building where at any request, a foreign official can look at my details and confirm my identity. As a Christian, my citizenship is held in heaven in the Lamb's Book of Life. We should never see our citizenship as being from earth. We don't come from earth. We come from God who is in heaven. We're going to explain that a little bit more later. But for now, we're going to say this. Our, de- our identity ultimately comes from God. And when we claim that he is Lord, we are sealed in the Lamb's book of life, a book that is held in heaven. What makes me a citizen of the kingdom? The fact I've been born again. I've been born into the kingdom of God. And because of that, my citizenship is not purchased. It's not second rate. It's not subpar. I have full rights and full responsibilities. And so this citizenship is what Paul uses in contrast to verse 18 and 19. He weeps over those enemies of the cross who are the enemies of the cross? Those who don't know Christ. It talks about how their end is destruction. There is a final reckoning coming for those who don't submit to Christ. Their God is their belly. They care only about what satisfies their desires. They glory in their shame. This uh, they, they take pride in things that should bring them shame. Instead, they're proud about it. Their mind is on earthly things. This is language similar to Romans 1, where it talks about those who reject God become futile in their minds. They have a stunted cognitive capacity. Everything mentioned in 18 and 19 is contrasted with citizenship in heaven, because in verse 20 he says, "...for our citizenship," or but our citizenship, "...is in heaven." So his exhortation goes like this. Don't be like those who have declared their allegiance to the world. They have set their mind on earthly things. Our end is restoration. Our desires are for God. We glory in Christ. Our mind is not stunted. It's more alive than ever. Not only is our citizenship in heaven... But so is our Savior. Why why do we await a Savior? Haven't we already been saved? Are we not promised eternity with Christ? Yes, indeed. But are all things the way that Christ has intended them to be? Not at all. Sometimes we can think we have it pretty good. But let's forget about the last two years Let's look at the few, last few thousand years. There are scores and scores of abuse and destruction and pain and death. The 20th century is the bloodiest century known to man. Hundreds of millions of people have died. Yes, there has been much done to the glory of God, but the curse of the fall has never left and it has brought much devastation. With great pain, life is brought into this world. With great toil, do we carve out our existence. Romans 8 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait. What do we and the creation wait? His promise to make all things new. Everyone is longing for a Savior. Everyone wants things to be better. But we can't do that in our own way. Just like a fish is dependent on water and a bird is dependent on the air, we have been created to be dependent on God. Act 17 says this, In him we live and we move and we have our being. Jesus brings up this point when he is tempted. Um, uh, my notes says in the garden. It's not in the garden. He's tempted by Satan in the 40 days in the wilderness. To the first temptation, he says this, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I used to think this was a reference to, to standing against temptation, or the the, the way in which to stand against temptation. And, And that is true. We must stand against temptation, not with our own wisdom, but with the word of God. But Jesus is saying so much more. We have been created to be sustained not only by bread, or by food, but by God himself. When mankind rejected God in the Garden of Eden, we cut ourselves off from our source of life. The healing that man brings never lasts. There is only one who can truly save us. Who do we need? It says that right there in verse 20. Who do we await from heaven? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who created us. The one who gave us his word. The one who died for our redemption. The one who commands us to follow him. The one who calls us to be his ambassadors and the one who will return to make all things new. The body of Christ was broken for us so that we could be healed. The blood of Christ was shed so that we could be forgiven. The life of Christ was given so that we might receive life anew in Christ. Brothers and sisters, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is so big, so without bounds, that he would come, that he would want to do so much to rescue people who wanted nothing to do with him, who fought him even when he came to cleave us from hell? What kind of love is it that sees us in our filth, comes to rescue us, sees us resist that rescue, but continues to rescue us anyways? What foolishness is this that he would offer us rescue and we would say no? Why? What are we gaining by our resistance? Oh, how glorious he is that he saw us in all of our wickedness and he didn't stray from the cross. We've looked at the why. Because of the work of Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom. In good standing with our King. We live in a broken world, but there is a coming restoration that we will get to be a part of. What will happen to us because of our citizenship? Verse 21 Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. When he comes back, he will restore all things and transform our lowly selves into being like him. Paul says here, we will be conformed into into like the glorious body of Christ. Does this language ring a bell? Remember what it says in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. That's what Paul is alluding to. We're going to go back to how it was originally. He will restore us to our original creation design. You see, the whole story of the Bible is how God's plan is to restore us to his original creation intent. God said everything was very good after he created everything. But we rebelled and we were separated from him. Separated from the life source we were created to depend on. And as a result, we decay and die. The incarnation of Christ, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection reversed that penalty and the legal hold that Satan has over us. And now our souls are right with God. But our bodies remain in this broken world. But is this the end? Are souls floating away to eternity? No. You see, Christ doesn't just want those who have trusted in him to live for forever. He wants to restore all things. There's an important verse an uh, important word in verse 20. It says that we await from it a savior. We await here for Jesus to take us to a heaven not that is separate from the earth. I would hold to the view of the rapture, but even that is only the beginning of the end. The final elements of the end is the restoration of all things. What does John say in Revelation 21? Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Both heaven and earth will be changed. John continues to paint this picture of how heaven and earth will be reunited, just like the original. John describes the nations of the earth bringing God their glory through the gates of the new Jerusalem that will never be shut. And the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they and He will be their God. The end of time is not just a city, but a new heaven and new earth where God restores everything, and God and man lives together again. And how does he do this? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, He will transform us, transform us by the power that he has as God. Listen to the words of Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. How does someone do all that? Only someone who is omnipotent. Only someone who is unlimited in power. Moses is talking to Pharaoh in Exodus 9. He says this As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Christ is Lord of all. Within Christendom, you'll have heard the concept of the sovereignty of God. And this is used generally to describe God's supreme role in the salvation of mankind. But when the term sovereignty of God was first coined, it was less, it still included it, but it was less about soteriology, which is salvation, and rather about cosmology, God's supremacy over all things. And because he's God, he has the power to subject all things, and he will. God, in the time that he deems is right, will say, enough is enough. The pain and brokenness of this world will have served their purpose and will be put to an end. Death will no longer reign. Death will be put to death. All will be made new. Our debt of sin has already been paid. Our debt of righteousness has already been bought and we have a promise of a final restoration. Death along with Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be a new heaven, new earth. God will live with man and he will reign over them. What is the purpose of this total transformation? What's the purpose of that promise? No matter what life brings, we are never to give up or despair Just like Paul said a few chapters back, I am living for Christ, and if I die, it is gain. We don't need to be afraid of death. This is the paradox of death for the Christian. Death isn't a loss, it's a win. We've had some loss here in the last year. Some folks who have been with us, are part of our lives, are no no longer with us, and we mourn that. My wife and I have a little one who's waiting for us in heaven as well. But our loss is their gain. And we aren't waiting for them. They're waiting for us. They're waiting for us to come and be with them where all is made perfect. And this is why the world is confused by the message of the believer who claims in trusting God but is fearful of death. God being with God is a much better place. So what's the summary of today? What is going to happen? The transformation of our bodies as we enter eternity. And why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. So how do we apply this to our lives today? What difference does this knowledge make? Well, for one, As followers of Christ, we eagerly await his return. That's a question we must all ask. Do we eagerly await it? Or have we set our mind on things of this world and we're just not as interested in it? Christ said on his Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This passage here in Philippians reminds us to be eager for his coming, and to question ourselves if we're not eager. There's five crowns promised to people when they go to heaven. There is one crown for us, for those who are looking forward to the return of Christ. That's found in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, if you want to do some research on that. What's another application? As followers of Christ, we must always live in the awareness of His power. Are we following His commands, or are we doing it our own way? No one can serve two masters. No one else can transform us. Only He can. So what about my story? How did I get over my fear of heaven? The difference for me came when I began to understand that the real joy of heaven was not that it was a different place than earth but I was going to be completely reunited with Christ I wasn't going to so much to an eternal place forever I was going to be with Christ forever and as I grew in my own relationship with him as I came to know him more and more I began to eagerly await his coming I can't wait for Jesus to come back, where all things will be made new. Where we, I will see my little baby in heaven. I'll see my grandparents. Where my dad will no longer have Parkinson's. I can't wait for all things to be good again. And all of this brings great joy. Eternity in a good place is one thing, eternity with Christ is beautiful, that is worth living for.